I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but today I am joined by none other than the principal at the Royal Ballet, Stephen McRae. We're diving into life as a ballet dancer, what it's really like to audition and get the part in the film Cats, along with life lessons he's learned along the way. This is such an eye-opening, heartwarming episode, and I am so excited to welcome Stephen to the podcast. We are recording remotely, so as always, please forgive any sound disturbances. You get it all, she said you're back in call when you're taking the liberty. Yes, you're taking the liberty when you're talking with liberty. Absolutely honoured for you to be here. You are a legend in the ballet world. Can't quite believe I get the pleasure of chatting to you. You've had just such a phenomenal, inspiring journey in your career that I feel like even if anybody listening never puts on a pair of point shoes, they'll be able to take away such an insight from your journey and tips they can use in their daily lives. So thank you for coming on. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. So you're a principal at the Royal Ballet and have been in countless productions across the world from being a guest artist at the Australian Ballet, the Tokyo Ballet, and even being the Railway Cat and the Film Cats, which is <laughs> an exciting career highlight. I would love to know what role stands out as a highlight to you. Oh, I mean, that's a really difficult question. I know, there's been so many. <laughs> the first full-length ballet that I performed in the lead role was Romeo and Juliet. And our production by Sir Kenneth Macmillan is, it's really an iconic piece. It's an iconic production and particularly in the world of dance, you know, one of those landmark productions. It's very young, 20, something like that. And in the world of dance, just like the world of sport and mm -hmm. Athletics injuries occur, and unfortunately, uh, one of the principals at the time got injured, and I was asked to step in. It was the most remarkable experience and journey. I had five days to learn the entire production, and I I, I had never done anything on that scale before. And it was quite a nice story because obviously I moved away from my family in Australia. I didn't know a single soul when I arrived here. They said to me, "Oh, the day you do your first principal role, leading role." Um, we will be there to watch you. You know, I think they thought it would take much longer, obviously, to do that. So I did not expect in any way for them to come over. And um, when the curtain came down, they were stood backstage. They had been there and watched the whole, just one of those, you know, pinch me moments. Absolutely. So are there any of they, them in ballet? Where did you start off? So I, I come from a family that had absolutely nothing to do with ballet or the arts in general. I'm from a motorsport family. So am I. That's amazing. <laughs> My father raced cars, drag racing, dragsters doing naught to 330 miles an hour in less than four seconds. Mm -hmm. um, but my father raced some of these cars. And uh, I think my family had no connection to the arts whatsoever. And I hope everybody listening to this can take note of that. You don't have to be born into those worlds to enter those worlds. I think what I took away and what I still take away was that I saw my father, but also my mother as well, following this passion that they had. They they adored that sport and they they were just so, I think, energized by it. They had this passion on top of whatever it is that they were doing in their life. The child, to see your parents have that, I think has had a huge effect on me because it enabled me to then go and find my own passion that I'm, I'm passionate about. 
And um, so when I was about seven, that's when I said I wanted to try dance. Yeah, motorsport family, you would probably assume that they would say, absolutely not, you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they couldn't have been more supportive if they tried. It was great, you know. Oh, that's amazing. How special, but wonderful that you've seen someone in such a creative field, especially something like motorsport that notoriously you do from a young age and then drop but the fact that your father continued with it just must have put you in such great stead mm -hmm. for your ballet journey yeah um in australia the sport the motorsport that he was doing drag racing you couldn't do it full-time professionally mm -hmm. you had to go to america to do that you know you needed big sponsorship money and all that sort of stuff and that was not my family we did not come from money it was purely a passion of his and he's an auto electrician so you know he couldn't afford to import parts from america and things like that so he was so intelligent that he'd say okay how do i make it let's make our own version of that so you know he basically hand built the race car That's and insane. the engine and bits that needed to be replaced so anything possible really yeah again just seeing somebody with that mentality okay we have a problem here so let's find a solution let rather than oh i'm defeated by this it was that was just never really an option it was just always well okay let's find a way to still enjoy what we're doing and make it possible absolutely how amazing and you said that you started by from about the age of seven what yeah. i don't know how did you decide to get into it full time and push everything in into it what did you have like a pinnacle moment was it watching previous principles like Jonathan Cope mm -hmm. and everyone what got you into it well I have to be honest and say that I because I didn't grow up in that sort of environment with a family that knew anything about it I didn't watch any performances I'd never been to the theater to watch a ballet I didn't watch it on tv obviously this was all before Netflix and the YouTube and all that sort of stuff so I didn't have access to anything so I didn't know you know, I really didn't know what ballet meant or what even just dance in general meant. I just fell in love with what dance did to me. So it sounds cliche, but I genuinely can remember that first lesson I ever had. And it all I can describe it is, is that it felt like I was this tiger that was unleashed. I was incredibly shy. I was that boy that would hide behind my mum's leg, wouldn't speak to a soul. And then this lesson, I went in there and I was the only boy at the time. And there were other girls in the class who had been there quite a long time. So they knew the setup. Uh, it was a jazz class. So it was much more free. Suddenly this teacher was like, just follow along. You'll be fine. And this cool music came on. I, I mean, I say cool. It was, you know, early 90s. So you can imagine the kind of music. <laughs> Brilliant. And she suddenly just said, jump as high as you can, spin as fast as you can, kick your legs up, you'll probably fall over, we'll all laugh and you just get up and try it again. And so for an hour, I was set free and it was phenomenal. And then about a year later, I did my first solo at a competition, so on stage by myself. And that was one of the real turning points where I, you know, I was in one of those tiny school halls somewhere doing a competition with a handful of other kids and the audience was simply made up of the parents of all the kids in the competition. But I realized for that, you know, two, two and a half minutes, I was just there in the center of the stage and I had the audience in the palm of my hand as an eight-year-old. That's just... The power of an eight-year-old to have that. 
Exactly. So obviously dance, you don't use your voice, but suddenly I had this huge voice because I was mm-hmm. in control of this particular situation and I could make people feel happy or sad. And uh, it, it just really spiraled from there. I think to do different styles. So I was doing jazz and tap and ballet. Um, and yeah. And I bet from that first performance, you must have got such a massive boost of adrenaline. And I feel like even if you're not a ballet dancer or want a career in something like theatre or have, even if you have a big pitch meeting or if you're a chef like I was and the adrenaline from the kitchens, how do you utilise your nerves and your adrenaline and sometimes a bit of anxiety of performing and how do you utilise that or do you live off the buzz of it? Well, first of all, I'll say that anybody out there, doesn't matter what age you are, just go and take a few dance lessons, even if they're on Zoom, purely for your posture. Because if you have to walk in and do a pitch or if you do a speech or something, if your posture, even if you're absolutely terrified, if your posture looks good, you're not going to show that fear and the people around you will relax and listen. But if your posture suddenly goes and everybody's thinking, oh, my gosh, that person's falling apart, you've lost everybody. So get out there, do a little dance lesson, just work on that posture. It helps you. Absolutely. I've taken a few at base studios and pineapple, obviously, but they've got loads online at the moment. Even you don't even have to go and do a proper lesson. Like look at a tiny bit of material and just say to yourself, right, over the next few weeks, I'm going to learn that little bit of a hip hop routine, or I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to try and mimic that little Gene Kelly scene or absolutely and if you've never danced before why not you know just absolutely let let yourself go but in terms of the you know adrenaline and nerves and things like that no matter whether, whether you're stepping on stage or as you said stepping into the kitchen or doing a speech what i always think and i think it's crucial particularly i say it to young dancers all the time is that when you step onto that stage it comes down to self trust You know, there's going to be pressure put on you by everybody. Society does that, even if they don't mean to. You know, if you've got an audience, they they put pressure on you. You have a coach, a director, they all put pressure on you. And same, you know, no matter what profession you're in. But the one thing we can do is control the amount of pressure we put on ourselves. Let everybody else put the pressure on you. But when it comes to that particular time, you've done the work you've prepared yourself, you've done the best you can, and you know in that situation, you're absolutely going to do the best you can in that situation. It doesn't matter what has happened, there are different circumstances and things like that, but before you embark on that, you just have to say, trust yourself. You will make this work in some way. There's always gonna be something that could have been better and could have been improved, but it's just, it's purely self-trust. You just have to absolutely trust yourself. Absolutely. And I always think you do tend to get in your head, well, I know I do in pitches and in meetings and about what you're saying when really you do have it. And I feel like if you do calm yourself, I don't know how you feel before a big performance, but is there anything you do before a big performance to um, calm yourself down and get you in the zone? I, I love to just play in my dressing room, lots of music. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Killers. So I usually have a lot of that music going on um, in my dressing room. I kind of just get myself all psyched up, but I don't like to overdo it before the curtain goes up. Some performers like to practice certain steps 
over and over again to give them that confidence beforehand. I do the opposite. You know, I'd rather just feel fresh and feel free. Because I suppose if it once it's in your muscle memory. I mean, you've prepared for that performance. Sometimes you only have, you know, two days to prepare for that performance. Sometimes you have two weeks. Sometimes you've been working on something for two months. But in each circumstance, you have to adjust your expectations. If you've only had two days to prepare, you've got to lower your expectations. It's obviously not going to be the same as if you had two months to prepare for it. Of course. How does the preparation change, say, from a stage show to it when, like, when you were doing something for Cats, the film? Have they got very drastically mm-hmm. different rehearsals? Yeah. With a stage show, obviously, once the curtain goes up, the curtain's up and it's live. You can't stop and say, oh, sorry, guys, hang on. rewind we're going to do that again um whereas in film you don't even have to have it all set and prepared they can create on set so you might have a little bit of choreography prepared but then once they're on set and they think actually this camera angle be better this way you might not need half of that choreography or you know or maybe you need something else that they perhaps hadn't thought of until they're actually there with the cameras so I I love both worlds because you can't beat live theatre. Being in that auditorium with that audience, you're all there together on this one particular moment of time. It's there and it happens, but then it's gone. And whatever remains in people's memories, that's all that's left of the performance. Absolutely. Whereas in the world of film, it's incredible because you can create anything, absolutely anything. So... I love both worlds. I would love to explore the world of film even more. It's incredible. Did you have to do a lot of improv for the film? Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest with you and all your your people listening to this. I In the film Cats, I played the role of Skimbleshanks, who's the railway cat. And he has this big song that he has to sing. And I had never sung in my life. So I had a vocal coach every day for about five months and I was absolutely terrified because the the cast were made up of people that had either performed that role in Broadway or, you know, here in the West End or had been in the chorus of the of the musical or played other roles in the musical. You know, absolute pros who who know what they're doing. And uh, here I am having to be the leads and sing a song. But that just shows how talented you are as a dancer. The fact that they were absolutely, they wanted you regardless of the fact that you hadn't sung. Oh, I don't know about that. But I think there was a bit of a story behind it because as a kid, although I was building all this confidence as a dancer, I was sort of encouraged to go and do some singing lessons and I hated it. I was terrified and I could talk and do a speech in front of anybody. I was happy to join, you know, all the debating teams at school and all that sort of stuff. Very happy to do all that. But to sing, that was a different thing, a very different thing. So I I just, I didn't do it as a kid. I I think I did a few months of lessons and then I was like, no, 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 no more. And then over the years throughout my professional career, I really kicked myself a few times because there were certain opportunities that I thought, I'd love to go and try that, but you have to sing. And um, once I had children, everything changed. And I thought, I don't want them to grow up and be in an uncomfortable sort of situation where you have to step out of your comfort zone and me sit there saying, yeah, you've just got to step out of your comfort zone, knowing full well that I actually didn't myself. So when this opportunity came and they said, can you sing? I said, I just don't know. Um, So the next day I had to turn up at this location and just belt out this song in front of a panel of people. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I just 
at that moment, again, I just thought you have to trust yourself and I don't want to live in any sort of form of regret. So um, I thought even if I don't get the part, at least I can say to my kids, I did that. I put myself in that horrifically awkward situation outside of my comfort zone. And, um, you know, thankfully that particular time it paid off and mm -hmm. very glad now that I can talk through those situations with my kids and have an, a very clear example of, look, I'm on this film for the rest of my life out of my comfort zone. So that's the biggest thing. I <laughs> That's incredible. And it just shows a common theme between guests is always just saying yes to anything, even if it is out of your comfort zone, you never know where it could lead you. Um, famously, just fake it till you make it. Well, I mean, the world of dance is that quote all over. <laughs> because let's face it, the, this ideal of what everybody thinks to be a professional dancer, particularly a professional ballet dancer, Everybody's got this fantasy image of what that is. And no human is born like that. It's just, it's the most unnatural thing in the world. And all of our bodies and the way we approach life and all that are so unique and different that it's impossible to be the cardboard cutout of what you think that profession requires. Um, I most certainly do not tick many boxes at all in the world of dance, but you just got to make the most of what you've got. Find something that maybe makes you unique compared to everybody else and just run with that thing, even if it's, you know, the most bizarre thing that you can think of. Anything to stand out. Yeah, the industry is such an interesting one, though, because I feel like from some people's perspective, it might seem quite elitist, which probably is absolutely not the case. What is your experience with this? Did you think that when you first started? So as I said in the beginning, I didn't didn't come from an artistic family, let alone a family that could give me access to, you know, the Royal Ballet School and the Royal Ballet. I mean, that was just not, I, mean, I didn't even know what it was. You know, I didn't, I didn't, hadn't even heard of it, let alone think of gaining access to it. So when I met this particular ballet teacher in Australia and she said, you know, to my parents, your son will go to the Royal Ballet. We didn't know what that was. I lived in Sydney, so we thought, oh, maybe it's in Melbourne or something like that. Like, I don't know. And then fast forward, you know, three years later, and there I am living in London in a hostel by myself with strangers, not knowing anybody, struggling with homesickness and all that sort of stuff. But I can honestly say that whole elitist image um, that unfortunately sort of gets tagged on to particularly ballet and opera. It's it's a real shame because if you ask somebody, you know, oh, would you go to the Royal Opera House to watch a ballet and opera? Usually the first thing they'll say is, oh, I can't afford that. And unfortunately, people don't actually know that tickets at the Opera House are mostly cheaper than any other theatre. <laughs> In London, you know, you can find a few standing tickets for three, four, sometimes five pounds. And depending on where you are, you have an amazing view. You know, people will happily go and spend more on a coffee and a, and a pastry. Absolutely. It's crazy. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. And then I think also there is this tendency to believe that the people in those industries have come from, you know, I say elite families. And Every profession, of course, you've got people that, yes, do come from families that maybe financially are able to support them in a different way. But I can genuinely tell you that, you know, myself included and many of my colleagues come from very normal, very, very normal families. 
I didn't have obviously the financial backing. There was no way that they were going to send me to London and pay to send me to the Royal Ballet School. I had to find a way to win a scholarship through all these different competitions and things like this. And was there one competition in particular that you earned your scholarship from? Was there a big clinical moment? There's um, it felt a little bit like a meat market, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's, um, but it's a phenomenal competition. It's held in Switzerland, uh, the Prix de Lausanne. And the prizes are scholarships to ballet schools and dance schools around the world. And some some also offer apprenticeships to ballet companies and dance companies around the world. So I won a competition a few months before that. So the prize money from that paid for my flight to get me to Switzerland. And then I was fortunate that I was ranked number one at the competition. So I got first choice. Um, so I chose Royal Ballet School and that was on the, the Sunday evening. I'd never been to Europe before. <laughs> and um, incredible! it was Sunday evening. It was the middle of winter. And the director of the Royal Ballet School said, well, you know, don't waste money flying back to Australia to come for the new academic year. Just go to London tomorrow. Tomorrow, just change your flight. You were meant to fly via London to go back to Sydney. So just don't do the Sydney part. Just get off in London. Um, we'll find accommodation. We'll make it work somehow. I turned up with my mom in London. Um, she could only stay for two days because we couldn't afford for her to stay in a hotel. She went back to Sydney and I was there with a suitcase of, you know, a handful of clothes. And that was it. It's incredible. Did the excitement outweigh the nerves at that point? I mean, I, I was just so naive and oblivious to what really was going on. I, I'd never lived away from home before. I maybe cooked myself scrambled eggs and maybe put one load of laundry in or something like that. But I was a kid at home studying, doing my academics, dancing as much as I could, and then suddenly had this opportunity. And of course, you're not going to say no. That's what you dreamt of doing. Um, but there was just no time, I think, to prepare for that mentally as well. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was getting into. The homesickness was insane. I honestly had about two years of intense homesickness. You know, I was constantly breaking out into all these rashes, which were caused through anxiety. No, and that in being in such a high pressure environment like training, mm. uh, I have a friend who trained at um, big ballet school. She's just come back from the Institute of the Arts in Barcelona. Um, and she actually has a question for you. She was so excited that you were coming on. She obviously was a massive follower of your rehab journey because she's actually going through her own injury rehabilitation journey that she's currently on. But she was asking what advice you would give her as somebody who's just starting her career, has literally just graduated, but has already suffered with loads of injuries while she was training and is really nervous that her career might be short-lived mm -hmm. because of that. Have you got any advice for her? Well, first of all, it's really important that all of us in society, really, but particularly in those professions where it is a physical profession, we need to change this stigma around injuries. Injuries, if you're using your body for whatever your profession is, whether you know, you're a chef or a dancer, a builder, whatever it is that you have to use your body, it's a physical profession, you're going to get injuries because our bodies are not actually made to do those particular things over and over and over again. We're built to, to walk, to, to feed ourselves, to do, you know, day-to-day -day functions, not to do these extreme things. And, you know, a professional ballet dancer can be on their feet for 12 hours a day, six days a week. 
you're going to get injured. Your body will break down. So we need to change the stigma of, oh my goodness, I've got an injury. They all think that now I'm useless. We need to change it and say, right, injuries, if we don't change the way we work, of course, injuries are going to continue to happen. So how can we learn from this? What can we do to change the way we work, the way we look after our bodies? Are we healthy enough? You know, I'm learning throughout this rehab process that what appeared, I guess, in public to be somebody who was functioning at a high level and performing regularly and doing all these tough shows, and obviously we were having children and things like that, it appeared that I was doing it. But I now know that I was incredibly unhealthy throughout that phase and not fueling myself correctly, not having nowhere near enough sleep. And anybody with children knows that that is just impossible to get sleep. Um, and again, my wife and I are not in a scenario where we have night nurses and people doing everything for us and we don't have family nearby. So we chose to have children. If they cry and wake up in the middle of the night, I'm going to get up. And that must be part of the challenge because you're both in such... So your wife's also a ballerina at the Royal Ballet. Yes. Right? And you both have chose to have such incredible careers and that's so amazing. And I was just wondering how you balanced can you balance having mm. these phenomenal careers with a home life and with the trying to enjoy yourself outside of your profession? Yeah. So realistically, the, the current setup of particularly big ballet companies who are performing regularly all year long, and particularly at the Royal Ballet, we don't have rehearsal periods and then performance periods. We perform the whole season nonstop and obviously rehearse every day different productions but there's always something being performed. So there's never a period of no performance. So realistically, the way the current setup is, it's just not compatible to have children, let alone three children, um, with that particular setup. But I really do sincerely hope that as other professions have evolved and moved on, they will really start to look at the culture surrounding it. Oh, sorry, I've got a little visitor here. The most beautiful little visitor. Bye-bye. <laughs> My youngest son, Rupert. Adorable. He's 18 months. I think, like many professions, the culture has had to evolve and accept that actually having children is one of the most natural things in the world. That's obviously how humanity has continued to move on. We need to make solutions, find solutions, so that Okay, people who devote their whole life to their career, they don't have to suddenly stop their career because they've also chosen to have children. It doesn't have to happen that way. So it's just hopefully in the coming years, you know, that culture will shift and find alternatives such as part-time, things like that, that we know physically we should be having rest days, you know, every second day sort of thing. Yeah, physically, as a performer, you need that recovery time. And the idea of part time because of parenthood would actually go hand in hand with reducing injury rates and things like that. So I hope in time, the next generation and the generation after that will find themselves entering these professions where they can follow their passions and their, their lifelong careers, but also comfortably have a family life as well. Absolutely. And you're just the perfect example, both of you, of also parenting whilst having this phenomenal career. I was just thinking, because it must be absolutely exhausting, albeit very 
rewarding managing both of them how do you mentally do you have any coping mechanisms or anything that you do to either energize yourself or to calm you back down when things get a bit chaotic I think when I was younger obviously my whole life just was engulfed by dance you know I used to panic that if I was woken up in the middle of the night before a performance, I would be like, oh my gosh, this performance is gonna be terrible now, or because I didn't get 12 solid hours sleep. Um, <laughs> now, obviously with children, you know, I've done some of the most demanding ballets you could ever do with two hours sleep. You know, that's just the reality of- Incredible, yeah. You know, I'm not saying it to, to be rewarded by people or anything, I'm just saying that is the reality. That's what I've chosen to do. So you just make it work. I think once you, you have children, I do believe you become a bit better at prioritizing things. So when I'm at work, I'm at work and I I am focused on that and I'm probably more focused on it than I was when I was younger because I know, okay, I've got this amount of hours to get through this amount of rep and I want to achieve this at the end of these hours. So let's make it work. Let's get it done, finish. Then I go home and then I switch helmets basically and right now I want to achieve this with my children. I want to make sure they're happy and this and that. And I think that is probably the way I approach it. And I, I, I'm sure any parents listening to this probably will, will be nodding their head in and agreeing with me because it's, you know, it's obviously a dreamland to think that you've got the, the headspace to be so engulfed in your career and your work. But the reality is you can't when you have children, you need to be able to to switch off from that and focus on the next thing. And I'm I'm so grateful for it because it, it's enabled me to look at my profession with very fresh eyes, um, to take a step back and look at how I was working before. And much of it, yes, great, but much of it I can learn from and do better in a, in a healthier way. And I hope that that now, moving forward after this injury and post lockdown and all this sort of stuff um, will enable me to have an even happier career and an even even healthier career because I love the profession. I think it's amazing. Like all of us in our different worlds that we all live in, there are so many things that we all see that could be better. And I know that those things take time. And I just hope that in time it will will all improve. Absolutely, because it is it's such a beautiful profession and one that well, I know everybody listening is grateful for, just for us to even be able to go and watch a ballet. For those who are listening that are in the ballet world and are training at the moment do you have any advice for anyone like my friend India who is just starting out in the industry do you have anything that they should be thinking of or any yeah. tips? I as I said earlier I don't tick all the boxes of what used to be the the I guess the cliche male prince in a ballet um you know I'm not six foot five I don't have dark hair you know, I'm I'm smaller. I'm I have ginger hair. I'm Australian and loud. So all I would probably say to people is um, just do not even try and be like anybody else. Don't even try when you go to an audition. Don't try and morph into what you think they're looking for. Genuinely, just be you and that is I know a comment and a, a cliche that we hear all the time. But you know, directors, choreographers. They don't want to see 20 of the same thing walking through the door all the time. They want to see humans. They want to see people that are going to translate that story that that production's about over to the audience. And if you're just another clone, you know, 
they're not interested in that. They want to see people. They want real. They want reality. It makes so much sense. And it's something that you forget because I, well, was training quite structured? Was everything, you have to learn a rep and you have to have everything on point. Did you struggle with that? Or was that a nice way of looking at things? As a child, I think I always enjoyed the discipline that naturally came with with dance at school i liked school you know i was probably a bit of a nerd i liked my academics you know i i was that kid at high school that liked to do advanced maths latin technical drawing you know i was that kid and i say that with absolute pride because that was i i enjoyed the challenge of those subjects so i think i enjoyed the discipline side of dance now when i say discipline i don't mean these hardcore coaches that are just brutal. I mean the discipline of, you know, you're committing to these lessons, you show up on time, you learn whatever you've learned in that lesson, you go away and you spend some time thinking about your corrections so that when you come back, your teacher can then move on and help you even more. They're not just repeating the same thing to you over and over again. It's that side of the discipline that I really enjoyed and I think a lot of kids do benefit from. It's that responsibility that you take on when you're embarking on these lessons. I'm still torn about so many different things. And uh, as a a child, you know, I was that kid that didn't go to birthday parties because I wanted to go to my dance lessons. So if it meant missing out on lessons on a Saturday or going to a friend's party, I didn't go to the party. I went to my lessons. So I think I missed out on a lot of the, the childhood norms but I don't know if you can't say if I turn back the clock, would I do it all again? Because I'm and that's what I thought was right. I can only relate. I spent my whole teenage years in hot, sweaty kitchens instead of going to parties. And it's difficult because on one hand, obviously, you do regret not having a normal childhood. But then also you're like, look where you are now. You sound like you're incredibly academic. Was there anything that you did want to do? instead of ballet? Well, I I really enjoy architecture and design. So, you know, I was doing technical drawing at school because at one point I thought, because I didn't know you could dance professionally. Because again, the family I was in, we didn't know that. We just didn't know that that was an option even. Technical drawing with architecture in mind and things like that, design in general. um, I've always loved advertising and things like that. So it was either sort of those worlds that I might have ventured into. I've been fortunate whilst performing full-time to also do some degrees. I've done a business degree. Amazing. A master's in marketing as well. So I've, I've done those with many different views that obviously I love my world and my profession. So I want to be equipped with different tools and different knowledge to, to help push that profession forward even further. Marketing is a great thing, I think, for many people to learn because it's just learning about that interaction between product and audience. And that's what theatre is. It's, It's, you know, putting productions there that are listening to their audiences, performing um, in ways that are inspiring their audiences and really interacting with society on a bigger scale. And that's what I've really tried to just do with those different studies. So we'll see. I don't know. I haven't pinpointed exactly where it is that I want to, what I want to do, but right now I absolutely love my profession and performing is, you know, one of the most incredible gifts you can be given because I I get to share those intimate moments with an audience every night. And it's like a gift for the audience as well. It's just, I think that's the one thing that we've been missing during lockdown is that escape, like going to the theater and going to the ballet and just, 
it's incredible because it's one of those things you have to turn your phone off and you're not allowed to film and you can't be distracted by anything else apart from what's happening on stage, which actually now saying out loud might be quite terrifying for a performer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I absolutely love it. I think when that curtain goes up, you're giving yourself to the audience and they're, they're seeing quite a vulnerable side of you as well, because as I said, we're humans, so we're not robots. Things do go wrong. And that's also the joy of live theater though. People, again, people don't want to see a robot on stage. They want to feel something. You know, if they sense a bit of nerves, they, they're still going to enjoy that because they'll see that artist, you know, suddenly settle 15 minutes into it. And um, they go on the journey just as much as the performers going on the journey. Oh, yep. Is there anywhere that the audience can watch live ballet or not live pre-recorded? over this time that you aren't performing. Yeah. So um, if anybody wants to go to the Royal Opera House website, the, the Royal Ballet and the Opera, they will all start performing um, in May when the next phase of lockdown is um, released. And uh, you'll be able to stream those performances live. So if you just go to the Royal Opera House website, you'll find the details out there. But our new season will begin uh, September, October time, which we're hoping we'll be able to welcome a full auditorium um, but we'll also be uh, stepping up the number of shows that are streamed and uh, made accessible for people more accessible than we ever were before. Um, so just keep checking the Royal Opera House website out because all the information's there. That's so exciting. To finish off this incredible chat, I feel like I've learned so much already. Do you have three things that you've learned from the ballet industry and from performing that you've taken into your life, whether that's commitment and different things that we've been saying? Uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest things is that um, nobody's going to do it for you. So it is you. You are the one, you know, some people might get handed things on a silver spoon more regularly than others. At the end of the day, you still have to put in the work, uh, particularly with these professions. You know, you're a chef doesn't matter if you were handed it on a silver platter. You couldn't chop up an onion. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to produce the end result. And it's the same in my profession. You know, it doesn't matter if you're suddenly a favorite of a choreographer. If you don't produce the goods, it's all there for everybody to see. So you're the one that has to put the work in. It's not up to the coach, the teacher, the director. It's, it's down to you. I think the profession has really taught me <laughs> the amount that we all have to sacrifice in life as well. You know, I've obviously given up my family. They're on the other side of the world. It's been nearly four years since I've seen them in person um, with lockdowns and all my different surgeries and just it's not been practical to fly back. So I think it's just that realization that again, in order to succeed in certain fields, you also have to accept that there is a large amount of sacrifice involved as well. And I'm not saying that to be negative or to put a downer on it. It's just having that um, open eyed view that it's not just all rainbows and, you know, daffodils in a field. It's the reality is there's a lot of hard work and sacrifice that goes in in these professions. My journey through this profession is a, a little example, I guess, of anything is possible. The suburb I grew up in, Sydney, is by no means that glamorous view of what you think Sydney to be with the Sydney Harbour view and all that. I was an hour 
west outside of the city. Things like the royal family, for example, were just things that would flash up on the news in this city called London on the other side of the world that I knew nothing about. And um, fast forward a few years and I found myself performing for the Queen of England in Buckingham Palace. And the people you meet as well. You just don't know what's going to happen. I never imagined I'd move to London, meet my wife, have three children who have all been born here and we're living in London and they're having that that life. So again, there is so much hard work and sacrifices, but there's also so much possibility out there in all professions, all walks of life. I think you've just got to be open to it. You've got to be absolutely open to allowing those possibilities to happen. How exciting. I feel like everyone listening is just going to go out and conquer life. It's just so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> anything's possible oh, amazing well thank you so much for joining I'm sure that everyone is going to be dancing down the streets with this newfound lust for living <laughs> so thank you my pleasure thank you for having me thank you so much how absolutely fascinating I hope you all took as much away from that conversation as I did Stephen is such a joyous person and what a wonderful discussion about the ballet industry you can find Stephen on at Stephen McRae underscore on Instagram and I'm Liberty on at Baking the Liberty. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you next time where we'll be joined with entrepreneur and CEO Meredith O'Shaughnessy. Anyone thinking of starting your own business, this is one for you. Thanks for listening and if you did like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps in making people aware about the podcast. You want interesting stories, hear hilarious tales, are cooking a glory, wondrous successes and epic fails, celebrity run-ins, all the gossip and tea, you get it all, she's at your back and call, when you're taking the liberty, yes you're taking the liberty. When you're talking with me, but